And this is what I like to call a list sermon. They're oftentimes one of my favorites because there's often not a, a lot of a, like a grammar issues and translation issues you have to work through. But uh, frankly, you get to preach through a list of items, each, each one oftentimes being really um, uh, fun to kind of explore different illustrations and things like that. So this is a list sermon. And I've been thinking a lot about the subject of unity since it will be a list of things that we are united in. And as I've been thinking about unity, one of the reasons I even chose the book of Ephesians was to get to this passage. So this is sort of the years in coming. Uh, I've been wanting to talk about our oneness because we've lived and gone through a very fracturing, polarizing time, not only uh, in our churches, but in our nation and in the world. And so what a better subject to try and speak into than the subject of unity. So I was going to you know, hit it really hard, this idea of you know, pulling together as a church. Um, but as I got closer and closer to getting to Ephesians 4, um, it just became clear. You know, Yuri, if you're looking for like a silver bullet... <laughs> Like you just preached a couple sermons on unity and all of a sudden everyone's going to be united. Just think about all the other things you preach about. Does that, you know, is it just you preach once about uh, putting your hope in Christ and all of a sudden no one ever has any trouble putting the hope in Christ. You, you preach a couple times about, um, you know, loving your neighbor and all of a sudden we're perfect at loving your neighbor. So I had kind of this false idea coming into this as if, there is an instant remedy or a shortcut to being united as Christians. Um, it's just like any other subject of Christian belief and, and faith that you oftentimes need to hear it multiple times in different ways and have God bring that, that, that conviction to you uh, from this angle and that angle and from this portion of your life and through this trial. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about church unity. Um, and it's important to Paul because he's leading, he is himself leading up to it. You have three chapters of, of theology and doctrine about who God is and, and the pinnacle uh, conclusion he has, or the first conclusion he has in terms of application is unity. At the same time, I know that in our hearts, it's difficult um, to sometimes truly grasp anything. Um, and so uh, I I say all that because there was a, a, a pull in my heart to think, okay, you're going to preach about this, and then you're going to you know, launch into uh, this whole thing about church unity. you got the business meeting coming out at the end of February. You're going to you know, cast this vision about our church united and standing against the culture and all this stuff. Um, we don't have to do that. I mean, if you can just make it through the sermon this morning, um, not fall asleep, um, if, if, you can, if you can make it through and just, and just have been compelled by one word or one sentence, that's enough for me. Uh, I, I really hope um, I don't ever come across like I'm trying to bully people into obeying the Lord. Now, should we obey the Lord? Yes, but um, no one should ever have to be bullied into that. So I do want to start by asking a few questions, though. And you can write down the answers uh, on your notes. We can talk about it a little bit more. Um, you know, during fellowship time. But in your mind, what, what does unity look like in the church? I, I can't tell you how much I've thought about this over the past weeks and months. 
and even years, just what, what would unity in the church look like? Does it mean that there's no cliques? Because every church has cliques. Every church has little groups that do this and, and a group of friends that does that, people who came to the church together, and so they naturally gravitate towards each other. There's people who form based on mutual age range. you got the young marrieds or the young families together. Is unity in a church meaning there's never any cliques, little, little groups that kind of naturally form uh, together and have sort of a, you know, not, not completely closed off to other people, but this is, this is your group. Is that unity? Is it unity if all of us looked and acted the same? In other words, it was very clear that uh, we were all of, say, one ethnicity. And in fact, we're one subsection of it that looked the same way. I mean, would it be truly united if we all came in and we're all wearing even the same clothes and the same uh, outfit, just like teams have a, a uniform to show that they're united. Would that be unity? Is unity that we agree on everything, that we don't do anything until 100% of the people of ICC say, yes, we are behind this? Or is unity when it, only when everyone is fully participating in, in an event. So we don't have unity unless everyone is here Sunday morning that can, that can be. Um, and so what does that mean about Sunday evening, where it's a much smaller group or a Bible study? I mean, is it only unity if we're all there? So I, I've been trying to figure this out. The elders have been uh, sometimes racking our brains about how do we, how do we draw people together? How do we convince and persuade people it's worth it to get involved in each other's lives or break down some of these walls? And uh, it's funny because uh, that quote last week, it was in last week's bulletin, I think I mentioned in the sermon too, um, that er Johnny Erickson Tata uh, gave, completely just blows up all of <laughs> those questions and thoughts. And even uh, when I prefaced about, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to get to Ephesians 4 and talk about unity and urge us to unity. And, uh, and she said, if you forgot the quote, believers are never told to become one. We already are one and are expected to act like it. I don't need to try and make us one. We already are. Are we acting like it? Maybe that's where we could use a reminder. But if I need to do some big push or drive for unity or oneness, I, I, in a sense, I don't need to. If you're a Christian, we're already in it together, whether you like it or not. We're already one. But there is a benefit to acting like it. Um, in fact, we could very much define the Christian life of acting like what our calling is. Remember, that's how Ephesians 4 starts. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You are already called a child of God as we have been memorizing Romans 8, 16, and 17. We are already heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with him. That is true. You don't earn that. You don't get there. We are that. So how are you going to live? That's always the question. We are already one. I don't, if I need to persuade you of that, it, all it takes is to say, when you believe in Jesus, you are part of his family. That's it. You didn't ask for that. 
Um, you are now in this mass together. Are we going to act like it? So really what we're going to talk about in this list, and it'll go somewhat fast, I think, um, seven ways, we're not going to get to the seventh today, actually. Um, seven ways we're already one and are expected to act like it from Ephesians 4. We'll just jump right in. In Ephesians 4, 4, Paul says, there is one body and one spirit. The first illustration or first reminder that Paul gives is that we are already one body. And we are to act like that. Now, we've talked about this many times before, especially in the context of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.23, Ephesians 2.14-16, Ephesians 3.6. It's always this context of, what? Jews and Gentiles now coming together as one body. And this is, uh, this is controversial, you could say, because Jews and Gentiles are so different. They are opposite groups. As far as the Bible is concerned, these are east and west. Never the two shall meet. And yet, they were common in needing salvation the same way from God. Because the Bible is crystal clear that Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners, for all of their oppositeness, for all of their being on completely different sides, as far as the, the Bible is concerned, yet they share this in common, they are all sinners in the eyes of God, and so this very one thing that brings them in common, their sin, also unites them in their need of a Savior. And so these two very different groups now are because of Jesus in one body. And all believers, we talked about this before too, all believers are part of one body. We call this the universal church. It's a catechism question even a few weeks ago. That all Christians, everywhere and at every time, past, present, future, we all make up this single body. And when you really, really think of that beautiful picture of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all across the globe, those who have passed away and those who will be, all of us being together, that's a truly beautiful tapestry and picture. And so Paul is saying, act like it. Act like that's meaningful to you. Act like that's something that's true in your life. How do you do that? Well, one of Paul's favorite illustrations of the church and church life is a body. We read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he uses that illustration that we're all members of one body. We all need each other. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, right? Or the, the ear can't say to the foot, because I'm not a foot, I'm not as good. No, the beauty of a, a body being an illustration is that while the, your body is whole and one, it is united. It's made up of so many different parts that function in so many different ways. It's truly incredible when you think about your body and all the different things that they do. All the different things, your, your organs and your, your fingers and your, your ears, even the, the tiny hairs in your nose, they all have a function and a purpose. They all are doing something. They're so different from each other, and yet they're part of one body. That's beautiful. That's glorious. So what does that mean about us? It, it means that at least one part of unity is not necessarily that we all look the same, 
They're all cookie cutter, that we all have to be good at the same things, that we all are exactly um, you know, equivalent in experience or, or, or giftings. No, we could be very different. But for part of one body, it means that we are all moving and working together. That's how we act like it. We appreciate the differences. We give glory and honor to the things even that are not what I'm good at. We don't just be jealous or resentful, but we thank the Lord that he's brought so many different kinds of people together into one. And that the one thing that unites us is, is not how clever we are or how spiritual we are, but just that we are sinners. Secondly, we are of one spirit. Now, we, uh, we've talked about this many times before as well in Ephesians 2, uh, 18. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In verse 22 of Ephesians 2, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We talked about last week, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Spirit is all about bringing together. Uniting. Uh, maybe you have been a part of a friend group where there was that one person who was always the one that was initiating the interactions, planning and in, inviting people to events. They're always trying to get people together. The glue of the group or the tortilla that's holding the burrito together. Just that person in your group. Maybe you can think of them. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the Holy Spirit by making an analogy um, to, to the glue, um, but he is the person of the Trinity that is always active in connecting people to the Lord and connecting people to each other. We don't have access to the Father without him. We don't have peace with each other without him. The Spirit is what brings us here. The Spirit drew us to Christ. The Spirit ex exposed our sins and our need for a Savior. The Spirit illuminated our hearts and regenerated us, made us born again. That's all the Spirit's work. Now, maybe it's hard to imagine, and I've thought about this a lot too, what does it really mean to live in a Spirit-filled kind of way? Um, I know that there are certainly some um, like uh, denominations that would have a very, um, that their understanding of that is very um, experiential and, and maybe very obvious, things like speaking in tongues or, or healing and things like that. Um, and, and yet that's not normative as far as I think the expectation of the church. When you see what spiritual living is throughout the Bible, um, it's maybe easier to understand by contrast, like what is not spiritual living versus what is spiritual living. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Maybe that seems a little bit nebulous to you, but uh, Galatians is just before Ephesians, so just a couple pages to the left. Here's what spirit-filled living is by way of contrast to what is not spirit-filled living. All right, Galatians 5, starting in verse 15 or 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the, of the flesh. So what's the opposite of spirit-filled living? 
It's, it's, it's fleshly living. Well, what does fleshly living look like? Well, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. So here's the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is not being of one spirit look like? Well, it looks like that list. Now, when it, <laughs> some of those things, I think, not a problem. Sorcery, probably not going to be a problem. But then you see it right there along with jealousy, strife, fits of anger. And you see, you're going to see yourself somewhere in here. Maybe it's not all of them. Uh, maybe it's not most of them. But you are going to fit some of those that's not spiritual living. That's not being one in spirit. In contrast, what is spiritual living? Verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Spiritual living, being of one spirit, that, that isn't something that is some heightened experience for the most mature Christians or the, the most advanced, you know, Christians once you graduate from all this low level, uh, you know, learning the, the, the fundamentals kind of stuff. No, spiritual living, you don't really move past love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what being of one spirit would look like as opposed to that other list. If we are of one spirit, we should act like we have been brought together and have been born by this one spirit. Back in Ephesians, you have this statement by Paul, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. When we were called by God, hearing and responding to the gospel, we were immediately brought into a unity of hope with all others who have been called by God. There's a common destiny that we share. As we've talked about already, we have a common inheritance as children of God to have eternal life, to share in the glory of Christ himself. We have one common hope, one common desire. Now, if I asked you, what do you hope happens in 2023? Or what do you hope would happen by the time you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80? I think we'd probably get 100 different answers. We all have very diverse things that we are looking forward to, that we would like to happen, that we would, that we would uh, enjoy seeing come to pass. Whether you're looking at your your, your house or your investments or your family or your career, wildly different goals would be represented. But Paul is reminding us, if you've been called by the Lord, we've all entered into one common hope, one common destiny and desire. 
whatever our little goals here on earth might be, and as much investment of time and effort we make into those, um, we should never lose sight that there is one hope common to us all, that all who have been called by God will be justified, sanctified, glorified, and will be with him in heaven for eternity. How should that change us? How should having one hope change the dynamic of our church? Well, um, okay, I'm not a, I'm not a super, I'm not a football fan, really. I know the Super Bowl is coming up. It always catches me by surprise because I just, I don't really follow it. I know it's sometime in February. Um, so it always sneaks up on me. But the way I understand it, you know, if fans of one team, they're sharing a common hope, right? <laughs> that their team will win. That is what they desire. That's what they long for. That's what they're expecting. This common hope, it allows them to cheer together, yell at the bad call together, endure the stress together. There's just something about it that makes them willing to pull alongside even strangers when you go to a stadium, when you know that they're on the same team, hoping for the same conclusion that immediately bonds you together. And you know, if you don't know anything else about them, that if, if your team wins, you know, you're going to be excited. You're going to be so excited for them. You know, you're sharing that, that glory and that enthusiasm, right? <laughs> now, unlike the Super Bowl champion, the Christian, we don't have any question about who wins. So I know hope you can have the idea when we use it. Um, it's, it's for an outcome that you would like to happen. But in the Bible, the word hope is used to uh, refer to God's plans that will happen. They haven't happened yet, but they will happen in our attitude about it. So what would it look like if we all acted like we all really believed that our future was assured and that it was going to be glorious and good? That we share that in common, even if we share no other goals in common, if we say, but you know what? I'm looking forward to that day when I see Christ face to face. Well, I think there's something that builds um, warmth and, and enthusiasm with each other. It, 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 we're on this together, in other words. We'd be saying we're going to make it. I need you to remind me when I'm going through the hard time that there is a hope in heaven and it's the same one that you have so you can speak to it. You see me discouraged or you see someone else down. You all share a common hope. You know what to say. It's when you have a common destiny, you can point to that and say, but don't worry, it'll be worth it all. It's my hope too. When we get distracted about what we should be focusing on, do we or do we not have a common goal that we can remind ourselves what's important? What are we trying to do here? It happens a lot in, in, our, in our elder meetings because we can get very bogged down by the minutiae, by the, by the details, um, by leaky roofs and, and, and you know, the carpets tore up and, and those kinds of things. And so oftentimes, some of us, one of us will have to step back and say, what are we really here about? We're trying to make disciples. You know, we're trying to glorify God and teach people to put their hope in him. Okay, so then how does this drive towards that goal? It recenters us. It reprioritizes us. It refocuses us when we can say, yeah, that, you know what? That's my hope too. Let's get there together. It's very unifying to have 
one hope with each other. Furthermore, Paul says, we have one Lord. Now this refers to Jesus, because we've just talked about the Spirit in verse 4, um, and we're going to talk about the Father in verse 6, one God and Father of all. So this is referring to, to Jesus. Now as a title, Lord means that Jesus is ultimately the one in charge. What is he Lord over? He's Lord over everything, of course. But specifically, Paul is trying to bring up that he is Lord over the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, that is God, the Father, put all things under his, that is Jesus, his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of the world as well. But in terms of unifying us, Jesus is our Lord. Now, how is this a unifying idea to rally around? Well, I know there's one sense where saying Jesus is Lord can be used as an excuse to do your own thing. Some have this attitude, well, only God can judge me. Only Jesus, I only need to please Jesus. I don't care about what you say or think. That is not what Paul is trying to bring up when he says that we have one Lord. He's obviously not thinking about you taking this you know, individualistic stand. Well, I don't care about you guys. I just serve my Lord and, and that's it. No, when he says one Lord and he's meaning a Lord over us all, that is trying to unite us together into one. Now, you could say it like this. We all have the same boss. And he treats us fairly. He treats us equally. And that's a good thing. I don't know if you ever had a class where the teacher clearly treated some students better than others. And what does that do? It tends to breed resentment. It doesn't incentivize working hard if you know that you could put in a lot of effort and the teacher's just going to give you a bad grade, whereas the, the, um, the darling of the class can give trash and the teacher's going to praise it. You're not going to try to work hard. It breeds resentment and division. You're going to think less of the teacher. You're going to think less of your classmates. Or maybe you've had a, a job where you didn't know who your boss was because uh, your, your immediate boss, who you like, was just fine and dandy. But you know, his boss is the micromanager, trying to get into everything. So now who are you trying to please? I don't know. Am I trying to please the, 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 my boss or the boss over him? It's very confusing. You don't know who you are trying to make happy, um, who ultimately has a final say over you. And I've heard actually that kind of testimony many times from many of you who, who are in the, the work world. See how confusing it is if your boss doesn't treat people fairly or if you don't know who your boss is. Having one Lord is a statement of unity because it means that we have all one and the same boss to please. No confusion, no distraction about that, no favorites. There's no middle management. We all work for the same person who thankfully views us all equally with grace and equity without any favoritism. It's a very clear statement of that um, in James, that, that, that God almost hates favoritism. Now that's 
very, very, very helpful for building unity to know um, that this is not my church and it's not the elders' church. And we're not trying to put you in a position ever where, you know, which, which pastor should I be trying to please? And if you've ever, you know, if you've been in churches like that, and I hope our church is never like that, um, but it can be very confusing when you get the sense that the elders are at odds with each other. And then you start having to pick, you know, okay, which, which one is, is really the one that we need to follow? That's how a lot of church divisions start, actually, and, and church splits. But no, if, if there is one Lord over us all, and this is Christ's church, and we're all equal in it, then we are all responsible <laughs> equally as members of his church. Now, we might have different roles and responsibilities. The deacons have a different responsibility. I have a different responsibility. You have a different responsibility. But we're all equally accountable to God who's looking and seeing and, and judging you based on how you are involved in the capacity that's given you. Again, not everyone's an eye, not everyone's a foot. So we have different roles and functions, but are you doing it for him? Wholly and totally, even if it's a small you know, ministry, are you doing it totally, wholly for him? We're all equally responsible to be a part of his church. We're all equally needing to do it his way, not our own way. And so this is our church under the Lord, one boss, but this is our church. So I don't have problems. We have problems, okay? <laughs> it's not my job to honor the Lord. It's our job to honor the Lord. This isn't my church. It's our church, and we all work for one boss. So if there's any problems here, I know it's tempting to just turn a blind eye. You know, ah, I see this is going on again. Someone should say something, but it's not going to be me. That is not, a, we have one Lord kind of idea. <laughs> That's thinking that other people have an obligation to please the boss, but not you. This is Pastor Yuri's problem, not my problem. No, <laughs> it's our problem, right? Because God is the boss. I'm not the boss. Jesus is, and we all have to obey him as a church body. So we have one Lord. We have one faith, Paul continues. Now, sometimes theologians, they talk about, let's say, objective faith and subjective faith. Objective faith means the things that we put our faith in. We put our faith in the Bible. So the faith passed down once for all for the, delivered once for all for the saints, Jude 3, that is using faith as like the, the body of doctrine. And Paul uses it that way in 1 Timothy 4.1 and uh, 4.6, that objective faith is this thing that we put our faith in. It doesn't change. It doesn't matter your opinion about it. The Bible, the gospel, Jesus, etc. Subjective faith is the faith that a subject has or that a person has, um, the Christian. So when we talk about having faith, living by faith, that personal experience, that experience of, of faithful living, that is subjective faith. You don't necessarily need to memorize that, but that's a thing that 
that often comes up in commentaries. So there's these two ideas. Now, they obviously go together because you can't have a true subjective faith without believing in the right objective truth. That, got, that has to go together. I can't have a real faith if it's not faith in the real Jesus, a real object of faith. But here, what's the emphasis? When he says one faith, is it referencing the fact that we all have faith in the same thing? In other words, like one body of truth or doctrine? Or is he talking about we should all be exercising a similar faith? As in, we're all trying to live by one faith. Now, don't want to get into uh, too much of the weeds, but this is talking most likely about that subjective faith. That's the most common use in the New Testament, and that's what Paul usually uses when he talks about faith, is our, that experience of faith, our walking in faith. And remember, he's trying to encourage unity amongst believers. He's trying to emphasize that we have a common faith that we are trying to live out. Let's say it this way. Whether you're a pastor or a parent, a student, or you work from home, whether you commute, you know, three hours round trip every day, whether you're retired, whether you have grandkids, whether you have no kids, whether you like classical music, whether you like mumble rap, whether you live paycheck to paycheck, or you have 10 investment properties, we are all trying to live by faith. We're all just trying to be Christians out here, living faithfully to the Lord. There's one faith that is uniting us. I think it's worth being, it's, it's worth talking about. It's worth reminding each other that we're just trying to live out our faith. I'm just trying to live out my faith as a Christian. I happen to be a pastor, but every day I'm not trying to do anything different than you are, which is, I just want to be a Christian. I just want to live faithfully to the Lord. I just want to actually trust him. I just want to speak truth. I just want to live faithfully. And that means if we're all just trying to live out this one faith, it doesn't look the same, let's say, but it is the same. That means we can help each other. It doesn't matter how different you might think your situation is from someone else's. We share faith and the desire to live faithfully. Help me. Help each other. Speak to one another about things that matter for time and for eternity. If you're a physically healthy person, you may have more to learn from about faith from someone who's suffering health issues. It's all the same faith. It just... You're not going through that. So, so maybe your faith would be strengthened by someone else's faith who's just trying to live faithfully as well. If you're older, maybe there's something to gain from interacting with the younger. It's all one faith. We're all trying to live. I think if you're here as a Christian, just what does it mean to be a Christian? We're all trying to do that. We all have that in common. How can I live a life pleasing to the Lord where I am? I think there's something very unifying when we acknowledge that, when we say that we're all trying to do that, um, to not judge people's walks or envy people's walks, but to say we're all walking by faith. We're trying to. It looks different for me than it looks for you, but we're all trying to exercise the same faith 
in, in the gospel, forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. There's one faith we're trying to live here. One baptism. Of course, the natural assumption when we read that in Ephesians 4, 5 is to see that as a reference to, you know, water baptism, physical baptism, which was expected and common for believers. I mean, it's, it's certainly what, um, what, what we believe in is that when we make disciples, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's obviously part of disciple making. That's Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. But Paul, he, the way he talks about baptism and the way he thinks about baptism, it's, it's rarely, he rarely references the, the water physical act of it. Um, in fact, if you, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 17, Paul tries to distance himself from the act of baptizing because some people were saying, well, I was baptized by Paul and I, well, I was just baptized by, uh, you know, some other guy. <laughs> And they were, they were making a thing of comparison. Who baptized? So Paul says, I'm thankful. I, I barely baptized anyone. That wasn't my calling, was to do the physical baptism. My calling was to preach. So he, in his theology also, typically emphasized not the, the water baptism, and that's not to diminish it at all. It's a necessary part of disciple making, like I said. But it seems more obvious that Paul likes to talk in terms of our spiritual baptism with Jesus in his death and resurrection. That when we believe in Jesus, it's like we are united with him, going into the ground and rising up again to new life spiritually. Now that's obviously what water baptism represents, but it is representing what has already happened spiritually when we believe. Water baptism doesn't make that happen. Faith makes that spiritual baptism happen. Water baptism just represents it. So when you go to many, many passages, um, Romans 6 is a big one, Romans 6, 1 through 11, but we also read one in 1 Corinthians 12 this morning uh, about baptism. It's clear that Paul is talking about our spiritual union with Christ, that baptism, that we, in, by faith, enjoin ourselves to Jesus in his death so that when he died, we died to our sin. And we enjoin ourselves to Jesus so that when he rose from the dead and came out of that tomb to a new glorious life and body, we also were raised with him to live a new and glorious life here and then in the next life. That we are to be different because we've been spiritually united with Jesus, baptized with him in his death and his resurrection. Again, you go to Romans 6, 1 through 11, but for sake of time, we won't go there. Now, either way, Paul's point, Ephesians 4, 5, whether that, you know, means physical water baptism or the spiritual baptism, his point is that all believers are united with Christ in that mutual experience. Now, um, when I was uh, in the army, um, now all people who go in the army have to go through basic training. But if you join the infantry, there's a totally different, distinct basic training you go to. Unless things have changed, U.S. Army, um, whatever job you have. In the, in the Army, they call a job an MOS, Military Occupational Specialty. Um, all of them go through basic training. It's nine weeks. It's the same basic training. Everyone does it. If you join the infantry, it's a very different basic training. 
Um, it's specialized. It's 14 weeks instead of nine. It all happens in Fort Benning, Georgia, whereas our U.S. Army basic training can happen here, there. Infantry basic training, very specific. All right, happens a very specific place. Um, it's more rigorous. There's different um, expectations physically, et cetera. Now, when you meet then another infantry guy, you know that they went through that training. Like if you know that they specifically went through Fort Benning, Georgia, their infantry basic training. You don't, if you talk to someone in another MOS, they could have done basic training here, there, or every, everywhere. But infantry, you know that they went to Fort Benning, Georgia. You know that they went through the same training you went through and the same rigors that you went through. You share that experience together, even if you don't know anything about that person. You know if they're a, it's called 11 Bravos, the, the MOS. If they're an infantry guy, you know that they went through the same experience that you went through and came out of it and now knows what they know and can do what they do. There's a level of common understanding that instantly bonds you because you know what they went through, even if you weren't there. You know what they went through, and you know that you can stand next to them as a soldier in arms. Now, this is sort of the way that Paul is using baptism in this passage. I mean, baptism represents a spiritual rebirth, an experience that makes us different when we're on the other side of it. Before being united with Christ, I was one way. I was in my sin. I was blind to spiritual things. Now that I have been united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, I have a new life I live. I am someone different. Saying there is one baptism is a way to say that there is a common experience that we are testifying to in our past that unites us and defines us now. It instantly connects us and lets us know something about the other person. What does it tell you when someone has been baptized? Now, again, I think it's spiritual baptism, but if, if uh, there's a reason we require water baptism to be a member of our church, it's to know that you have followed the Lord and that ordinance. Um, but what does it tell you when someone has been baptized? It, it, it should tell you that person understands that are sinner in need of grace that they looked at their lives and realized, I, if I have to stand before God, I will be ashamed of all my sin and all the things that I've done and my own self-righteousness and my own ego and pride. Baptism tells us that you know that only through Jesus' death and resurrection can I have forgiveness from that sin and a hope to be with him and to not be as I was that you're saying, if you know the other person's been baptized, that I can only live now and move and breathe and have my being in Christ. And by the power of his spirit, live a life that is pleasing and honoring to him. I want something different from my life. Because I've been baptized, I want to honor God, not myself. I want to love other people, not love me. That's what baptism ought to tell you both spiritual and, and, and water. That's what that represents. You know something about the other person that connects you in terms of that common experience. And we say, oh, we're different people now, aren't we? We've been baptized by Christ. Again, I don't think it's necessarily meaning water baptism, but you know, you're a Christian now. I've, I've put that faith in Jesus. Oh, okay. 
It means we're something different now, aren't we? It means we're, we're part of something bigger now, aren't we? It means something about me and, and my own abilities and, and thoughts about myself, doesn't it? When we have one body, I'm sorry, when we have, uh, yeah, one body, an attitude of one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those things that already are, when we actually <laughs> open our eyes and, and embrace them, we'll have unity, the kind of unity that I would love to see. But I know we need the reminder. <laughs> I know you need to remind me. I know the world can, is always trying to tear us apart from each other. You know, and, and um, <laughs> we can't let the world win in trying to, to, to get us to um, start disparaging each other, looking at each other with the suspicion. We, we can't let the world tell us that there are many, many ways and many, many spirits, many, many bodies, many, many faiths, many, many baptisms, many, many lords. Oh, there's just one. And the great thing about Sunday mornings is we can remind each other of that. So we gather. That's why we're a little bit averse to having like many, many services. It's because we want the whole body to be able to see each other at once. Now, I know people are sick and on vacation and things, but I think giving that opportunity is really precious. So I hope that at least one follow-up idea to this is to make the most of this time that you have on Sunday morning. If you can't get enough of it, we have Sunday evening service. We have Bible studies. We've got, you know, adorned small groups. We've got, you know, men's breakfast. All different ways to show our unity. It's not that any one thing means we're united. It's not that one time we vote on the budget at the annual budget meeting and it's unanimous. Ah, we finally achieved peak, you know, Christian unity. No, unity is something that we are and that we just show we believe in the little moments throughout the day. When we pray for someone, we call someone up, when we have lunch with someone, when we ask someone how they're doing, when we organize an event and invite people to come. Those are all the ways we just show what we already are in our unity. So no silver bullets, unfortunately for me. <laughs> no magical formulas, no secret words I can say to you, and all of a sudden we're going to be, you know, kumbaya and holding hands, and no one has any problem with anyone, and we're just, you know, loving each other. No. Instead, there's just, I think, the daily expectation to think of each other, think of the Lord, um, know that we are together, even if we're apart. I mean, you can still be united with people that you don't see every day. Um, but to understand that that is true, <laughs> and we are expected to live it out, as Johnny Erickson Tata said. So let me pray. We won't get to the one God, one Father. We'll do that next time we're together.